0: Over a hill and under a misty mountain, deep within the unceded Musqueam Territory of Vancouver, British Columbia, I'm Doug Vandalay with the final episode of Season 1 of Comedy Zeitgeist. I'm not in the Goblin Cave this week, we've found a new network of tunnels under the mountain and are trying to find a larger cavern for the show. You can follow the show on Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist and pester me at Doug Vandalay. Hello to everybody listening on CITR 101.9 here for the first 30 minutes of the show. Coming in at 4 years my senior, he may have already achieved his dream of wanting to be a dinosaur I'm here with the incomparable, award-winning stand-up comedian, Ivan Decker. How's it going, Ivan?
1: Good. How are you doing? Sorry if that made noise.
0: So you're back in LA now. What I could tell, you were in Calgary yesterday, and if I'm not mistaken, Seattle the day day before?
1: Uh, No, I'm actually in, I was in Seattle uh, for the full weekend. I'm in Calgary next weekend.
0: Right, gotcha. Uh, How is that, is is that part of a tour, or just...
1: That's just my uh, regular weekend comedy club workload. I kind of uh, am living the three-day life at home model that you reach eventually once you book comedy every weekend of your life. So I basically come home every Sunday or Monday, uh, and then I am here for three or four days. And then Thursday, I'll fly somewhere, do shows for three days, and then come back, do the whole thing again.
0: Sort of like a fly-in, fly-out minor.
1: Yeah, exactly. Five days on, four days off. Um, although they're not really days off. I have to do all kinds of other stuff, writing and everything else.
0: Right, what other kind of stuff you do in those uh, so-called days off?
1: I will get, if I get like, you know, it's when you back up, like I'll back up emails and stuff like that. Like if I get backlogged, uh, that's when I'll be sending out like, yes, I can do your gig or no, or please talk to my agent or I'll deal with you directly, this kind of stuff booking flights, all that like finicky stuff that I didn't know was part of comedy until I was too deep in it to not do it. Yep. Because obviously <laughs> the main thing I want to be doing is doing telling jokes and writing those jokes. But I didn't realize that uh, a huge part of this as well is like personal organization and all that stuff. Mind you, if you get a manager that can kind of consolidate, all, so that's kind of what I'm in the process of doing right now is make that sw- swap over to... Somebody deals with all that stuff, and then I could just focus on material.
0: And what's your favorite city for comedy?
1: Oh, it's got to be Vancouver, for sure. That's where I started. It's where I grew up outside of. It's just such a great city for a number of reasons. The comedy talent there is so great. The uh, audience there is very discerning, but also good. So it makes you into a really good comedian if you perform there a lot and do really well. Like basically it's one of those cities where like, you know, if you do well here, you're gonna do well everywhere. There's no, if you do well in Vancouver on stage, you're gonna do well kind of everywhere. The only adjustments I had to make when I left and came to the United States were, there's some vocabulary that you get caught with as a Canadian and they do not forgive you for it because you don't have an accent outside of that.
0: What are are some examples of that?
1: So, like, because we sound like them, it kind of sneaks up on them, you know? Like, if you say, uh, I was driving on the highway, they don't say that. Or, like, uh, the one that caught me was, uh, I I parked my car in a parking garage, and I
0: called it a parkade. See, that's one I haven't even heard, living here for a year in Vancouver, a parkade. Yeah.
1: People don't say it in Vancouver?
0: Oh, no. I mean, I've only lived here for a year. I'm from Australia. Okay. Yeah. Do they
1: not say parkade in Australia? I guess not. I think it's like a French-English bastardization word. Probably. Maybe it only
0: exists in Canada. Shit, I don't even know what we call it back home now. <laughs> Probably
1: parking garage. That seems like the simplest.
0: Or like a parking lot, maybe?
1: Yeah, parking lot. But if it's like a multi-level structure, yeah, I call that a, like a parkade, but... Yeah, it was, it was very funny because somebody was, I was walking out of a comedy pub and they're like, where did you park? And I was like, oh, I'm just in the parkade. They're like, what? What is that? <laughs> what are you talking about, you crazy foreigner? It was pretty exciting <laughs> to learn all these things.
0: Do you think uh, Vancouver was a good place to start out? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really like the
1: scene in Vancouver. It's an intimate scene. It's small. You don't get lost in a sea of, of comedians because if you go to a big city like Toronto or here in Los Angeles or New York and even to a certain extent, some of the other bigger comedy cities in the States like Chicago or I think Austin now Portland, there is such a huge open mic scene that it becomes very difficult for those open mics to handle the demand for stage time. And so it results in there being like a lot of open mics or like weird open mics that, crazy hours of the day that no sane person would want to go and watch. Just comedians are going to be there. So you develop in a different environment. You develop the first few years of comedy just performing for other comedians, which is fine. It's good, but it's not the same. It's like doing magic for magicians. Like they see what's going on and it's going to be a lot harder to impress them than – regular folks who don't eat sleep and breathe comedy like comedians do
0: and then i guess the same kind of jokes wouldn't land as well
1: yeah that's true too i mean there's a certain contingent in comedy that has a very warped sense of humor and so
0: you get these kind of comedians referred to as comics comics like a neil hamburger etc
1: yeah totally and those and the, some of them can they do it really well i mean like louis ck originally was a comics comic that was kind of his thing and the sort of climbed out of that and achieved public appeal but for the longest time like he was the cool guy at the cellar all the comics watched him and and then eventually he, may, he reached that mainstream feel and now he should just leave <laughs> but uh it is that thing that's you can bridge that gap like if, if you're funny to comedians it doesn't mean you're not funny but to start out in that environment you don't learn some of the lessons that you're gonna need to learn to perform for large groups of people with other jobs i don't know how to refer to non comedians i guess i could say non-comedians like people are yeah, like, like civilians
0: civ- or yeah civilians uh, let's do regular
1: that. people i'm like i don't i don't know you know, I, I, don't know they are. <laughs> I actually
0: had never thought about this in terms of comedy but i actually wrote my master's dissertation for architecture school on a similar kind of phenomenon in that we go through five years of architecture school just showing our designs to other architects and you never learn how to uh design for people and then you go out into the real world and suddenly you're dealing with a client who might be like you know a lawyer or a bricklayer and they have no idea what you're talking about like my first client i used the word materiality and they were like what the fuck is that (laughs) (laughs) it's just something that we learn in school and i guess it's the same kind of thing like you're you're training if you only perform for other comics you're training yourself to only perform for other comics
1: yeah, and I noticed all that stuff. Like, you'll see vocabulary and accessibility is a big one. I mean, I uh, I went to an, an architectural debate in Vancouver at one point. They hired me to come in. They were doing a show similar to the debaters on CBC and where these two architects were debating sort of uh, something within the architecture world. Because uh, as far as I I understood, probably about 2% of anything that was said that evening. Like, it was insane. I felt like it was in another world where I was like, am I do I even speak the same language as these people? I don't understand anything they're saying. I feel like I'm a relatively smart guy, but I cannot follow this whatsoever. And I think it's just because there is this like inside terminology that people use when they're around each other for a long time. And this happens with comedy as well, sort of subconsciously. Comedians are not aware that some of the acronyms they might use are just small things like, you know, this next comic... You've seen them at JFL. It's like regular people don't know what that stands for. It's just for laughs. You say the full thing, but they don't do it because they're just like, well, we all know,
0: right? Yeah. Speaking of the debaters, how does one go about getting on that show? It is a... Uh, it's casted by
1: the producer, uh, creator, producer of the show, uh, who lives in Vancouver, and he will come to a lot of the sort of bigger shows that happen in town or just once in a while, he'll be around to kind of check out the comedy scene. And so the way I got on was he saw me perform at the Vancouver comedy festival. And then um, usually it comes through like recommendations by comedians who are already on the show as kind of like show regulars. And then you'll kind of be brought in. Usually for your first debate, they'll put you with somebody who you know and maybe is like a show favorite. And then they'll help you kind of work through the, the debate to make sure that it's it's really funny and then they can carry it. I mean, it's such a great show to do because Steve is just so funny. And you know that no matter what happens, he's going to be able to cover. You know, it's it's so great to be. Because people often think of just the one-on-one debate relationship with you and your opponent. But Steve is a big part of it, and uh, it's really awesome for whenever he interjects and can make something really, truly funny.
0: It was definitely one of the uh, highlights of my week listening to the debaters back when I worked in a, a workshop. Oh, cool. Uh, you, so your personal quote on IMDb says, in improv, you have to create everything out of nothing, which I find very difficult. With stand-up, you're a joke hunter. You're trying to find the laugh and move on. So how do you feel about the stand-up versus improv rivalry?
1: Yeah, I don't know why there is a rivalry. I think it's just, it's like two branching skill trees in a role-playing game. You can't really go down both. You sort of can, and there are people that can master both. But definitely if you start out in one, it's a bit, it's difficult to bridge to the other. Because it's just a completely different relationship with the audience, too. I think there's a lot more trust involved with with which in stand-up i think like you kind of have to build that improv there's this sort of idea people come in knowing like oh it might there might be mistakes but that's what that's part of the appeal you know i think it's kind of like when you watch a really good improv show you feel like you came along the journey with them whereas i think because it was it was a discovery for everybody including the people on stage Whereas with stand-up, it's much more like a guided tour. You're kind of taking them through your planned act, and there's a lot less kind of deviation from that. I mean, there can be. It depends on the stand-up. There's a lot of comics who do a ton of improv and or crowd work and, and that kind of thing. So there are places where it mixes. I don't know how that quote got on IMDb. <laughs> it was kind of funny. That's like from an interview I did, like, a while ago and i was i was taking improv class because i decided to i wanted to try and you know be good in every facet of comedy one of my comedy heroes is paul up tompkins and he's so funny at stand-up and then he made this bridge to improv and he's also great at that and so i was kind of trying to see if i could do that but i think that it is a very difficult thing to to sort of cross over because every instinct i have is to get a laugh as soon as possible regardless of the story that I'm, you know, improv, there's a lot of different things you have to take care of as the scene progresses. You have to take care of the story. You have to take care of the other characters. You have to make sure that something doesn't just like throw a monkey wrench into everything you've built so far, but with standup, say whatever you want to get that next laugh. It doesn't matter because if the topic expires, it's fine to just move on and bring up another topic, but with improv if you're like in a scene, you kind of have to stay in that world. And so you don't want to do anything that would shatter that and undo a lot of the work that the other characters on stage have done to build it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. There's a, a couple of shows that uh, I really enjoy here in Vancouver. I don't know if you've you've seen them. Uh, the List with Randy Newmeyer, which is three stand-ups will come up throughout the night and do a set and then the improvisers will improvise based on on their material,
1: yeah, like an Armando, cool.
0: yeah, and then another one, stand up versus improv,
1: the Matty Vu show, yeah, that's right, season, right, uh, Blood yeah. Feud,
0: Blood Feud, it's called, Blood Feud, yeah, I had them on yeah. here as uh, as well uh, a few weeks ago. Y- you did a set on Conan last year, it did. Um, it was a
1: pretty insane uh, the way it kind of came about. I mean, I I attribute almost everything good that's happened to me in the last three years or four years from. I got booked to open for John Mullaney at the Center for Performing Arts in Vancouver. and uh, It was at a really good time. I had a really strong 20 minutes that I had been doing on the road, and everything just kind of lined up perfectly that night. I had a really good set, and in that crowd that night was the, the booker for Conan. And also the, uh, a person who worked for Just for Labs who would later become the kind of head of comedy for Netflix. And so I feel like the uh, set that I had that night may have influenced my path uh, a bit. But the guy from Conan came up to me after the show and said, you know, that was a really good set. We'd, we'd love to, if you want to submit a tape uh, and maybe start working on a set for the show. Uh, and maybe like when it's ready, we'll, we'll have you on. So... I said, okay, I'll send you a tape. And he said, um, also, you need to make sure that you could work in the United States legally. And I said, that's going to be more difficult than putting a set together. But I called a lawyer and kind of got everything ready. And so then three years later, once I had my American work papers, I sent him an email saying like, okay, I'm, I'm allowed now. So I'm going to, if you want, I can submit a tape. And so I did. And we kind of went back and forth and and talked a lot about what jokes I would do. And when you do those late night shows, they really kind of, you know, it's not like any other show. It's not like they just kind of turn the camera on. They're like, here you go. Or I think that maybe that was what they used to do, like in the old days of The Tonight Show. Now they vet it, of course. They got to make sure you're not going to say anything crazy. They want to know all the jokes you're going to do. And they'll help you pick an order that works best for their audience. And so after we did that for a while, uh, they invited me to the New York Comedy Festival to do kind of a showcase, which is like they took 10 of us that they were kind of thinking about having on the show. And we all did a set in New York in front of like a whole bunch of producers and stuff of other places as well. Then I got a phone call when I got back that they wanted me on the show the following week. So it was like every time I've done TV ahead of that, I've had months to prepare. You know, I can go out, I can run the set every night. I can work out so I look good on camera. There was none of that with this. It was literally just like, see you next week in L.A. And I was like, oh, my God, okay. You know, I had to kind of really get ready super fast. I mean, the set was already in a pretty good place because I had been getting it ready for the showcase in New York. And I kind of did the same set, although I'd had to shave a minute off, which was kind of difficult to do because it was a six-minute set on the showcase but the show itself is five minutes oh but yeah i just so i they flew me down and put me up in a hotel and then it was over thanksgiving weekend too which was kind of interesting so like the four days i was the first monday back after thanksgiving american thanksgiving so the whole four days before that the entire staff of the show was was off so i had no way of communicating with anybody about like what time is the car coming to get me or should i do anything before like what happens on the day it was only that morning that they like emailed me and they're like carl be there at 11 and i was like okay well it's 10 now i gotta get ready so i had to like quickly get ready and go down to the studio they take you walk you through you know sound check and everything and then uh you don't really meet conan until the end of your set so i just kind of hung out around backstage rain wilson was very nice i talked to him oh he was the the guest that day he was the guest, and Angie Kinsey, both kind of people from the office, were the two panel guests. Right. So it was like this little office reunion. It was kind of fun. And then, uh, yeah, I I did I did my set. And again, it was like there's no uh, there's no time to like wait around backstage. Like you do other festival tapings and stuff, you can kind of go down and like watch the comic ahead of you and stand by the side and be alone and kind of get ready. Whereas here, it's very much like they just come backstage and they're like. Okay, you ready to go? Okay, great. Follow me. And we're going through. All right, open that curtain. Have a good time. Like, there's no time to pause. Like, they just kind of walked me down a hallway and then opened the curtain and I was out there. And they gave me a very nice intro. Conan, you know, the people there uh, wrote me a really cool introduction. And it was, it, they said something about like he's a Canadian comedian, he's making his American television debut here today. So give it up for Ivan Decker, and the crowd stood up. There was a standing ovation, like right off the bat, before I even said anything. So that kind of caught me off guard. If you watch, I guess you can't really see the beginning of the set because online they don't have the introductions in them. But if you watch the taped version, you can see me walk out and look totally stunned when everybody stands up.
0: I've been in that crowd before. I um, had a twelve-hour layover in LA. I was looking for something to do, and someone on the street in Hollywood was like, "Do you want to come be on a taping of Conan?" So. Oh, sweet. Obviously, I did.
1: Because yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they
0: always need a full crowd in there. So you, exactly. know, you don't pay to be in there. How, how did you find that crowd compared to a regular comedy club? Well, crowd?
1: it's a very interesting space, specifically because due to, I think, ease of recording or whatever, um, you're not really mic'd in the room. Like when you're talking, you're holding a microphone, but your voice is not going into that microphone and coming out of speakers loudly into the crowd. It's kind of just, they're just listening to you talk. It's a soundstage. I mean, maybe there's some playback, but it's, it's much quieter than you would have at a theater or a, or a comedy club. And that was kind of what I noticed right away. So because the mic is a little quieter, the crowd has to be a little quieter to sort of pay attention. And so people say it's like a tough crowd. I didn't find it to be that. I just think that it's also strange because you're standing off to the side. And so there's a... A crowd like very close to you on your left side but on your right side there's kind of like camera equipment and stuff in between you and the rest of the audience which is why it's kind of funny if you watch like Conan tapes uh, you'll see that comedians will often look left a lot because that's where the closest you can actually there's nothing in between you and people sitting in the audience whereas everywhere else there's like boom microphones and one of them is like a, a close-up camera and so I tried to make sure that I was, like, looking in all the different places and, like, did a punchline into the, like, direct camera
0: Do, they, do they coach you on the stage or anything beforehand? They give
1: you a little bit of a, of a walkthrough, like, come out, stand here, do your set. Um, and they did say to me, they're like, try to look everywhere. People have a tendency to look left. So I think they're aware of it, obviously. They run a great show down there. I'm sure there's nothing I could say that they haven't figured out.
0: <laughs> did you meet that hype man they have come out at the start of the show? Yeah, I did. What's his name? I, I forget. He was for- really funny.
1: I forget, but yeah, he was really funny and, and a really nice guy. Um, I know they've had, like, different people over the years, but he was he was really good. And, you know, it's that's so nice and so important, too, when somebody can kind of change the pH of a crowd like that because it's uncomfortable to sit and wait and you want the show to start and you know what's going on. There's a lot of stopping and starting in television, so having somebody like that that can keep the crowd hot is so good. It's it's really great to have,
0: and you you wouldn't often get that in a stand up situation. Like you have the host of the night, but I mean, this this guy's like getting everyone excited intentionally.
1: Yeah, and it's it's actually kind of funny when you when you compare it to regular stand up because you know a lot of the people who host comedy shows are comedians. Usually, I mean, it's like probably ninety percent of the time, but. Sometimes your comedy style does not lend itself to hosting. Like if you're like a storytelling comedian or you're kind of like low energy, it works, but the idea of the host is you got to come out and be like, all right, everybody, we're so excited. This is great. Even if it's fake, it's still better than you're like, okay, that last guy was pretty good.
0: Long pause. That being said, I would watch a uh, comedy night hosted by Stephen Wright. Of course, of course, <laughs> that'd right. be great. But do you think that'd be like a comics comic kind of thing, going back to what we talked about earlier? No, I don't think so. Because
1: he's high energy in his own right. Like he kind of has, he has it. He certainly has an energy that, and he has so many jokes, right? He's yeah, punchlines every four seconds. So he's a he would be a great host because he can come out and do two or three jokes, bring up a comic, and not take six minutes to do that. Right. It's funny when you see a host go up and do more time than the comedians are doing in between the comedians. Like comedians are doing six minutes, seven minute sets. The host is doing 10 minutes in between every comedian. <laughs> You're like, I don't
0: think that's how this is supposed to work. It's just a sort of a night for themselves, I guess.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, some people really like being on stage. But if that's the case, try uh, try headlining. Maybe that's that's probably for you.
0: So you mentioned uh, someone else being in the, in the crowd. It's related to Netflix. Yeah. Um, so you have this Netflix special coming up, The Comedy Club.
1: Yes, yeah. So that's a special... That's kind of a working title. Um, I don't know if it'll be called The Comedy Club. It's basically just a set of... They decided to tape a whole bunch of international comedy specials because stand-up on Netflix was largely like from the united states and you know there's quite a few from the uk and australia but not really from a lot of other countries where they have comedy and especially in other languages other than english so they taped like i think 42 specials in total um i think maybe about 15 or 20 of them are in english and then they have like You know, a bunch in Spanish, a bunch in French, a bunch in Arabic. And it's really cool. What they're going to do is they're going to release them kind of by region. And then they'll be subtitled into every language. So you can watch comedy in a whole bunch of different languages. It's really kind of cool that they're doing that. Kind of opening up and showing people that like, yeah, there are stand-up comedians in the Middle East. Yes, there are comedians in... South Africa, you know, it's South America. Like, it's it's really cool.
0: Have you already recorded so, that?
1: I did, yeah. I recorded it at Just for Laughs because that's kind of a good way for them to, to do it, to bring people to an international comedy festival like that and kind of tape them all at once. But they did a really phenomenal job on the taping. I was – so they kind of did four people from from each country. There were eight from Canada because they did four English and four French. Um, but I was lucky enough to be one of the four, and they did, yeah, it was really great. They they fill the theater super well. They kind of give away tickets, and so the crowds are super excited. They have a great host, like I said, like a hype man Graham Chittenden, who's a very talented comic from Toronto, was doing the warm ups, and you know it was godsend because he's so funny and he really gets the crowd into a into a good place for the tapings. And they also tape two shows, which is really good. So it's a half-hour set, so they basically do, you know, you do one show where you do your half-hour, then they get a new crowd in, and you do another show where you do the same half-hour, and you wear the same thing, so they can kind of edit between them, and it's in the same venue, but it's kind of funny, because you basically pick one show to be the backbone show, like, this is the main, and we're going to edit in any jokes from the first show, we didn't like it. Well, I say the first show, but it's, you pick whatever you want, but it's always the second show, is the backbone show, because I watched it cut, and... It's amazing how much more relaxed you are when you know you've had one in the can. Like I taped it and I'm like, that one was good. Now I don't have to worry as much. And you're so much more calm and relaxed and audio sounds the same. The jokes sound the same to be delivered. They're saying the same words, but visually, just my body language, my face, like I'm it's like night and day. So much more relaxed on that second show so the fact that they do two is phenomenal
0: how do you find watching back clips of yourself
1: i hate it there's nothing worse it's so painful it's uh, i don't know i because i'm so critical right there's a million things i would change about everything and they were nice enough to let me be a part of the editing process for this which is very rare with taped live comedy specifically at my level but they were really cool. Like I was able to go in and be like, I kind of screwed up my words here. I don't like what I said. Can you take that out, or can you switch it from the first show? I said it a little bit more cleanly, and and they were like, yeah, of course, yeah, we can switch between that. And so we ended up, uh, I think, making a really good set. But yeah, it's it's so I I didn't want to do it. I was so hesitant. It was like two days later. They were like, can you watch it back and and kind of send us your notes? And I was like, I'd rather not. I'd rather enjoy the. Mystery that it was the greatest show of my life for another couple days before I go back and pick it apart mentally
0: Do, do you find but that's important for improving upon your set watching yourself back?
1: Definitely you can learn a lot from watching yourself. It's extremely like I said awkward and painful and you know if as long as you're in a good place mentally you got some good self-esteem <laughs> I'd say if you're depressed don't watch yourself back because it's just so... I mean... Well, so, you're, when you're I so edit crazy.
0: this program, I uh, I do it on double speed so I don't sound like myself and that, that works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. You can stay removed from it. It's like staring in the mirror for a long time, you know? If you stare at your own face for long enough, you're going to hate it. You're going to be like, look at that stupid thing or there's like a... Oh, I got like a... And shaved properly. Or, I don't know. I can't think of examples because I don't look at myself in the mirror for very long either. It's kind of like that. I feel like you can... You can always find something to not like about yourself. But the other side of that is it is still important to do because you'll spot a lot of comics have like physical patterns and you can't always rely on your friends to tell you about it because it can be awkward to bring up when you say to somebody like, hey, you always move your hand in this certain way and it looks really weird. Is that on purpose? Like, it's nice if you have friends that are nice enough to do that, but. Sometimes it's good to watch this off on tape just to spot it.
0: You won a Juno Award for your comedy album, I Wanted to Be a Dinosaur. Uh, First of all, congratulations.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Uh, Do you think that's opened a lot of doors for you, winning that award?
1: Um, I think so. I think it has in in Canada. It's certainly a a pretty high honor. I feel like it'll be maybe even more recognized once it keeps going because it kind of just came back. They didn't have the category for 34 years. The last person to win a Juno for comedy before me was Rick Baranis for Bob and Doug McKenzie, the soundtrack to the movie Strange Brew, which was in, I think, 84. So it's been a very long time since they've handed out the award. But this is nice because it is kind of bringing stand-up back to being a legitimate performing art that people should have a lot more respect for. It. I feel like to the average civilian telling somebody that you're a stand-up comedian. It's like saying you're a birthday clown. Nothing against birthday clowns, but, you know, it's that thing where people are like, oh, yeah, neat. Yeah, I had a cousin that did that. Cool. But when you actually are a working professional, it's very hard to sell the idea that, like, no, no, I do it full-time. Like, I, it's my job. And they're like, oh, really? But the Juno coming back, and, you know, it's, it's that kind of little marker of, like, no, what we do is important. And we do... It is hard, and it's just really nice to, to be recognized for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what can you tell us about the album itself? I recorded it um, at the Comedy
1: Mix in Vancouver, and uh, I definitely put a lot of work into it from a whole show point of view. I mean, a lot of people put out albums now, and it's it's they do it for radio play, so they try to make the jokes like as short as possible, and they don't really have to connect at all. I tried to make my album much like when I do my act in a club. If I'm kind of working on it, just like a whole story. And so it has kind of some themes involved, and I mean, it it sort of functions as an entire performance altogether. It's not just a list of jokes. And I don't know how well I succeeded. I mean, I must have gone pretty well because they gave me a goddamn award for the thing. But it was the first time I'd ever done that. You know, I. Before that, any time I had I, I was just like, okay, let's see, how many jokes can I tell so that it'll be 45 minutes and then I'll leave? Whereas this, I was very conscious of like, what should I open with, what should I close with, what should I put in the middle, how can I weave this? And uh, I think it turned out pretty well. People seem to like it a lot. It's a, it's a really good listen. It's clean, there's no cursing on it, so you can listen to it with your kids in the car older relatives, and, uh, you know, it's, that's kind of always been my thing, too. I want my comedy to be accessible for everybody. I started watching stand-up comedy when I was eight or nine years old, and so I just have such fond memories of, of loving it so much back then because it was this world that I kind of wasn't allowed in, but there were certain comics that I was allowed to be a part of, and it was just so cool. So I want to try and do that as well. Like, it's, it's always very funny when people say, like, oh, my my seven-year-old loves your joke about the zoo, or like I've had people send me an Instagram video of their kid like doing my material. I just think it's so great. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, I, that's I was a bit worried because usually stand-ups are a bit harder to squeeze info out of than improvisers. Yeah,
1: because they, like I said, they have a tendency to, to try and get a laugh instead of, you know. And that's and that's always something you have to identify too about the, about the show you're on. Like certainly when you do like morning radio or something to promote a club. They'll ask kind of the same questions you're asking, but they don't want a sincere answer.
0: They want you to just be like, it was
1: wacky, bro. <laughs> well,
0: this is supposed to be more like about comedy than comedic itself. Perfect. Like podcasts are nice. I thought
1: I always thought podcasts were such a cool form of media because you can pick the player. It's very rare with other stuff, you know.
0: And it's opt in, which I really like in that. Yeah. Like radio and TV you're at the mercy of the producer but
1: totally and even like netflix and stuff it's like you, you have to use their player you have to watch it online or whatever podcasts are very like you can play it on anything you want here's the file yeah have at her <laughs> there's no seniority there's no guarantees in stand-up you know just because you do it for 12 years doesn't mean it's your turn to be on television yeah it doesn't doesn't mean you're gonna get the call. There's no lineup, you're not next in line. There is, it's nothing like that. And so people often get wrapped up in that idea of like, but this person didn't go through all the necessary steps. Like if you go to school to be a doctor or a lawyer, it's like you do all the things and then you get to the end and they're like, here you go. Or it's like stand up, you could commit that amount of time to stand up. And it's like,
0: so can I be a comedian now? And they're like, nope. (laughs) has this big element of luck in there as well
1: sure yeah Yeah. luck like i i've said to people and it depends on the shows too but showcases comedy contests are very common now and people put a lot of weight on that and i don't like them because of what they do to the scene the relationships between comedians are also fragile and i feel i always felt like we should be one team it's us because it's such a hard thing to do and so if you are a comedian you should be kind and appreciative of every other comedian everybody else that's trying to do what we do is they're on the same path as you you know their struggles and and they know yours better than anybody else that doesn't do it and so there's no reason why we shouldn't get along but it's because of that idea that people are like oh well if they do that spot that means i i can't have it because they're kind of taking things away from me yeah, But that, I don't think that should be the attitude.
0: For anyone on CITR, thanks so much for tuning in. That's the end of our time slot, but you can hear the full episode along with other podcasts on CaveGoblins.com. For anyone else, stick around. We've still got lots more to talk about with Ivan. And before the show, I asked Ivan about a comedic influence to talk about today, and he came back with Irwin Barker. So what does Erwin Barker mean to you?
1: Irwin was uh, absolutely a genius writer. and and comedian, he was a comedian, he was a great example for me when I started because here's a guy that I've never heard of or seen, but he was as funny or funnier than a lot of the professional comedians, mainstream comedians that I had access to as as a young boy. And so it kind of shattered this idea that I had that like if you, like the famous people are the best at the thing, right? Or that, like, you know, these people are, are going to be the top. There's nobody – if they're good, you've heard of them. It's not true at all. And that was a, a really cool moment for me. And Irwin was also amazing because he was doing the style of comedy that I I wish I could do or I wanted, I wanted to do at the time, which was very clever, great observational comedy. I mean, any of his bits you look up, it's just brilliant, brilliant writing. And – he was just so great, and it was awesome for me to watch him because, you know, I I started comedy in the, I guess, early 2000s, like 2004, 2005, like that time, and stand-up was, was very – it was starting to get very broy. It was like Dane Cook era, and so, you know, I, I say that just because, like, that – they're kind of the biggest comic at the time, so that you have – they have a lot of influence on the – on the lower level. I mean, now it's great because people have access to so many comedians. But back then, it was kind of like whoever the most famous comic was, you'd have like 25% of everybody at an open mic would sound like that that comic. And so it was this very kind of bro-y, a lot of dirty material, a lot of aggressive, kind of aggro stuff. And then here's this guy, Erwin. He's an older guy, you know, definitely. A decade older than most of the people in the room, including the audience, and that didn't stop him. He'd come down. He used to do a. He'd open his jo- show sometimes at the comedy mix, being like, oh, "I feel like the weird uncle coming down to check on the kids. What are you kids doing down here in the basement?" And uh, it was crazy to watch. And it re- really kind of broke the, a lot of the ideas I had, the, the preconceived notions about comedy, being like, "You can. D- if any, if something's funny, it works." You know, it doesn't matter if you're too old, you know, if you're old, so what? Just talk about it. If you're, and he didn't curse, he didn't swear. So he would, he would just do these great, hilarious jokes to people. He would talk about puffed wheat to 20 year olds doing Jager bombs and they would love it. And so to me, I was like, okay, it's, it can be done. And it was also cool to watch him go up on shows that I was on because very rarely because we were at such different levels but if the stars aligned at a at a sort of showcase night at one of the clubs i could go up and then i could watch him you know it's, there's so much benefit to watching a comic with extreme skill do a show in the same room you just did a show in because you can watch because there's no way to like if you watch a netflix special it's a completely different environment than than what you perform in when you get to watch somebody with that talent go up to a microphone you just spoke into, same crowd you just talked to, and do so well, you learn so much.
0: How did you first come across his work?
1: I saw him in in Vancouver. I, I went to the Urban Well, which everybody talks about. That was a real lightning in a bottle. You want to talk about lightning in a bottle shows in Vancouver. I mean, not really lightning in a bottle because it was around for 15 years, but it it was kind of... What is responsible for, I think, starting a significant comedy scene in Vancouver outside of the clubs? Because there are so many cities with equal size population in Vancouver or even bigger that don't really have a good comedy scene because there aren't any of these like alternative shows. Uh, A lot of comedians don't live there. But at this time in Vancouver... uh, there were uh, some comics that lived there. I mean, I don't know the full class, but I know it was sort of Brent Butt and uh, Jamie Hutchinson or two that were really, really good. And Brent Butt, I don't know if you know, is of Corner Gas, and he was extremely talented. I mean, he's an amazing comedian. But I didn't I didn't see him a lot when I started. Like, he was making Corner Gas. So he and, and uh, Jamie Hutchinson started this independent show called The Urban Well, and he hosted it every week. And it was this... It was kind of the first non-club show that every comic would be at. And the talent level at the time in the city was so high. You had so many great comedians and Irwin was one of them. And they would, it was just this like insane thing they were doing because Brent was so funny and he hosted every week. They started to get this crazy following and they used to do two shows. They would do an early show and a late show on a Tuesday night. So they would have a seven o'clock show and have eight comics and then they would turn over the crowd and do a late show and it was unbelievable so i was so lucky when i started because i could go to this place and you're pretty much guaranteed that every professional headlining comic in town is going to be there whether or not they're doing a set is anyone's guess but you get to see the best of the best and it was this this kind of cool like showcase night everybody wanted to be on it when they were starting out it was like this is the big show this is it this is the majors if you can get on this show it's cool. And you get to go watch, like, these comics are amazing. And you can watch them every single night. Kind of like the main room at the comedy store or the cellar in New York, I guess, to use. They're obviously a much grander model of that. But it was just so cool. And it, it kind of kept the, the comedy in Vancouver in this sort of special place. And, and people loved it. And so it made, I think it made a lot of comics not move away. They just kind of stayed because there's a tendency to like you reach a certain level. You're like, I'm just going to go to Toronto and try to get a job writing on TV. But uh, it gave comics a place to kind of bond and be together here. That was where I first saw Irwin. I started comedy. I heard about this place. This was post Brent. Brent had left already to start making the TV show Cornered Gas. So I never met him there, but it was hosted by a guy named Sean Pradlove, who was hilarious. And and. I would just go and watch. I would watch every night. I lived in the suburbs, but I would drive into the city every night and just watch comedy, even if I wasn't booked. You know, I'd go and I'd try to get on, but it didn't matter. I I mostly just wanted to see comedians because, again, this is like pre-YouTube. I have no way of just like finding comedy and, and watching it. So I had to go. I had to drive into the city. And so I would come in and I would you know take 45 minutes to drive in park my car and I would just go and watch comedy for the night and try to talk to comedians and ask them about what I should do and how they write if if they weren't you know I'd if they were nice enough to talk to me I obviously didn't want to bother them but uh, yeah it was really cool and and like I said Irwin was one that just kind of blew me away Did you ever get to perform in that night I did yeah I think twice I performed at the Urban Well not on the late show ever cuz it was kind of 2 years into my my comedy uh career like kind of two years after i started doing stand-up it uh the building got sold and so it stopped being a show and and it was kind of the end of an era really in vancouver but what it gave birth to was the amazing comedy scene that we have now and i don't think anything in this you know the kind of comedy scene that we have would not because they also had a really good improv night sorry i'm kind of glossing over that fact but they had a a fantastic improv night on Monday nights. And I think that was also the beginning of the kind of independent improv scene in Vancouver. Uh, It was run by Roman Danilo, who uh, went on to do a lot of really good stuff. And so it was a real hub and it it kind of sowed the seeds that that have blossomed into the great scene that we have there.
0: So like Barker, you also wrote on This Hour Has 22 Minutes, working with the, the debaters as well. What's it like working on the same show as one of your comedy idols?
1: Uh, it's really cool. I mean, it's daunting. And and when I wrote for the debaters, when I, when I first got it, I went back and listened to a whole bunch of Irwin's debates because he's absolutely brilliant. And it was kind of cool to sort of see what he did. And 22 minutes, I only, I did like an internship. I only wrote there for about a week. Um, and it was a really kind of, cool way to get to know the the inner workings of writing for a tv show because up to that point all i knew about tv show writers rooms was like from 30 rock which is like you know a uh, uh, exaggerated version of it you know so it was it was really good to to get that experience
0: so i've got uh, written down here as well that uh owen Bach was a five-time chemini award winner Three Writers Guild of Canada screenwriting nominations, including one win. I thought this was interesting as well uh, from his website. Owen holds a master's degree in sociology, has taught at the University of Alberta and University of Manitoba. His comedic approach reflects his unique understanding of Canadian culture and politics.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. You know, he's great because he could do do well anywhere. Anywhere. I mean, you could take the guy... We called him the professor. It's kind of his nickname. I mean, I never really got to cuz I don't think I was really in the inner circle, but the, the comedians called him the professor because he was so smart. He would write jokes in a way like like he was writing an essay. He would often like take a topic and just write out like he would write an essay on the topic, beginning, middle and end, three paragraphs, whatever, then go back and make it funny. So he would so his jokes always had like an interesting point. Somebody dared him once to see if he could write cuz they were like he can be funny about anything and he can perform for anybody so he's from the prairies from he was originally from like manitoba so he was this and brent i think has this too where it's like he's a smart guy he can perform in cities metropolitan audiences love him but he's also just a like a farm boy so he can go back to the middle of Saskatchewan, the middle of manitoba and and make those folks laugh as well to me that's also such a huge skill to be able to perform for any audience and and make them laugh But he was once dared by fellow comedians to write five minutes about raisins. Like somebody just picked an innocuous topic. Like, I dare you to try and write five minutes on raisins. And so he was like, okay, I'll do it. And he did. He wrote. It was five minutes, then it became ten minutes. I mean, if he wanted to, he could do like 20 minutes on just raisins. But it ended up being this, like, he did a a set, a gala for the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, completely on raisins. And it was hilarious. It was so great. One of the parts in it that I remember being so funny was he talks, he's like, it's like, raisins, uh, they're good for you, I think. They're high in copper. Says that right on the box. I guess that's good for you. Otherwise, it would say, warning, high in copper.
0: It's uh, interesting as well. You said he uh, he could perform anywhere for anyone. Uh, he did a special in, in Kandahar for the Canadian troops in 2007.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the few that have gone over and, and performed in Kandahar. I mean, he's really, really amazing. And it uh, it's kind of uh, it's a shame that Canada doesn't have the star system that the United States has, because otherwise we would all know him. Yeah. Because he definitely did not lack the ability. He was an unbelievable comedian.
0: Yeah, I have to admit, I, I hadn't heard of him before uh, you brought him up to me a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know why that is. You know, I guess maybe it's it's kind of the the path you take in comedy too, is like if you become a writer, which is kind of, the, there's a lot of those jobs in, in Canada, you kind of end up getting hidden. You know, you, when you write for other people, you don't wind up in front of the camera a lot. But to me, Irwin was, he absolutely belonged on the other side of the lens. I mean, not that he couldn't right he was an amazing writer obviously he won awards for it but to watch him perform was also so great like he was really really good
0: we keep saying was obviously the past tense during 2007 Bach was diagnosed with gonna butcher this Leo myosarcoma, a rare type of terminal cancer he drugged that his doctor had given him 12 months to live but my lawyer says he can get it down to eight
1: (laughs) yeah I mean he he kind of took it in stride and it was it was so cool to see him be so strong and yeah, he went even through chemo, he kept performing. He was like, I'm not going to stop doing stand And so we would see him even when he got really sick, came out and there's a picture of me on Facebook that I was lucky enough to, to be there that night when he kind of came back to do one easy. Like he'd been away for a while and then we kind of did this like Irwin's back show and kind of a farewell show, too, all at the same time. And uh, it was just such a magical night because he came down and that was where he first told that joke. So nobody had seen him. We were like, How's he doing? Is he okay? And uh, he comes back and he's gone through chemo, he's sick. And, and then he comes up and he says, You know, it's kind of a somber evening anyway, but the way he delivered that joke that night just murdered because it's like he takes the, the tension in the room and diffuses it immediately and it was just so
0: great i, th- I think that's really smart that you could use something like that the, that tension and pivot yeah like and that's because i imagine kind of- he, he was thinking of that like they're gonna be so it's gonna be awkward how can i how can i break that and make a joke about it
1: yeah exactly and that's you know that's what makes him one of the one of the masters it's that ability to not only know that but deliver it in in a way that works and it's not edgy or anything as well it's yeah it's just like a lot of times when something like that happens if there's awkwardness in a in a space in a comedy room just letting the air out of it that's all you need you know it's to use a cliche it's bringing up the elephant in the room it's you just have to talk about it a lot of times you don't even have to have anything too clever about it just just bring it up you know like if if something weird i i've done shows where something weird will happen on stage like a audience member gets in a fight not physical, but, like, stands up and, like, shouts at a comic and then storms out, and then the comic just, like, continues their set and then leaves, and then the host comes up and just keeps going with the show, and nobody really talked about what happened. And, like, three comics later, I'll get up and be like, we're all still thinking about that weird thing that happened, right? And people are like, yes, God, thank you. And even that's just, like, I didn't say anything clever. I just addressed it, but it will kind of relieve that tension and i mean that's just a skill you get after doing comedy for, for so many years
0: what are you what are you working on right now
1: um, my biggest focus now after the ne- i mean I was working on my next album my next hour my next sort of special but uh that kind of became netflix because it was what i was working on to record uh a new a new comedy special but then i got one with netflix so the the material that i've i've done that I've been working on for the past kind of year went into that special. Now my, my task is to build another, build another hour. It's a very interesting thing because, you know, people often talk about how many hours of comedy does a comedian have in them? Cause it's finite. You can't, you know, Jim Gaffigan has five, and that's amazing. So this will be kind of my third hour special that I'm doing. I guess two and a half, because the Netflix was only half an hour. So it's it's really trying to find a, a point of view and a place where I want it to be really good, obviously. So uh, that's what I've been working on, is, is trying to find... And I want to make sure that the jokes are the best, and not, I I found my Netflix special was kind of funny, because like the last album I did, or was going to do, and even the Netflix special, I was like, it's there's so much of it is about food. Like, I talk about food a lot, and I think it's because it's one of the things that kind of connects us all, like everybody eats, so it doesn't matter, like there's no, it's also not really political, food, whereas everything else you can kind of
0: divide, divide, I mean, obviously there's divisions on food, but it's not, it's not the same vitriol yeah, I mean, until you get about. into the, the classic pineapple pizza thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pineapple on pizza. That's up there with gun control in terms of topics that'll split the room. See, um, some people get pretty heated about it. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. People care more about that than anchovies, which is bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I love them both, but... Yeah,
1: it's pizza. What's wrong with you?
0: It's all good. Everything. It's Everything's good. <laughs> So is there anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Um, not really. I think if uh, if you want
1: to see me perform, my my website is a little bit – it doesn't have like show dates and stuff on there because I find that it gets uh, – it kind of gets muddled. It's difficult to update. So the best way to f- sort of follow me is on social media, Instagram and, and Twitter and, and Facebook. I generally will post my shows to my Facebook fan page. And uh, I'm going to be – Opening up for Gad Elmaleh in November in Vancouver. That'll be a really fun show. I've I've gotten to work with him a few times. He's really really funny. I just like his his journey is, you know he's a famous comedian in in Europe who spoke French and then decided to learn English to do stand up in English, and this is kind of the uh, the result of that. And it's it's really cool to watch. He's really funny. Oh awesome. And so, uh, I get to open for him in Vancouver in, in November. But apart from that, I'll I'll be back uh, for a lot of the fall. I'll be around, so people might see me at shows and stuff.
0: Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was Ivan Decker talking about Irwin Barker. Join me next time when we kick off Season 2 Strong with Carla Marr and Raquel Belmonte of Carmela Comedy with possible special guest Guy Fieri. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to follow us on all social media at cavegoblins and check out what we're doing over on cavegoblins.com. We've got a Reddit community and a Discord server you can find through our website, so hop on over there. You can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere you listen. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ComedyZeitGuest. See you next time.